Hello, and good evening. I'm Mark Prater, and you may know me as a radio host, public educator, and two-time Grammy-nominated big band swing recording artist. Well, tonight, it brings me immense pleasure to be hosting this installment of Series Unraveled, where we will be discussing The Wrong Station. It was my idea to get rid of the the in the title. It used to be the wrong, the station. Well, I'm sorry to say that they made an arrangement with Velocity that was then reneged upon. Hello? Can you help me? I'm lost. They hired me to eat a ghost. And I did. For decades now, The Wrong Station has been thrilling and terrifying listeners around the world and across all demographics, age, gender, identity, species, and state of matter. Now, I think after all these years it's safe to say that we all know what The Wrong Station is. No, tonight is not about what, but about who. Because the history of a great show, of any great piece of art, is the history of the people involved. Those who made it, and those lucky enough to see it being made. In this program, we'll be diving headfirst into this history, through archival audio, phone interviews, and new and exclusive testimonies from production members we've been able to track down, or momentarily raise from death. My hope, and all of ours, is that by tugging on the strings of this rich tapestry, you'll come to appreciate the fuller picture even more. But for now, that's enough from me. I never felt appreciated while I was working there. Those wrong station people never appreciated me. You, you wouldn't believe the stuff I did for them. I got a phone call at 3.30 in the morning. No heads up at all. They'd say, Jim, Jim, we got a very special guest coming in, and we need you to pick them up at the airport and bring them to the studio. And so I drive out there, and when I arrive, there's this... Dark sable horse waiting for me. And it's hard enough getting him in the car and driving over to the studio. But when we get there, the security guard starts giving me grief because nobody's told him what's going on. And, and while we're uh, 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 arguing, that horse, he gets up on his hind legs, reels back, and, and sucker punches the guy. Just, just instantly killing him. And Adrian will tell you that the horse just knocked him over. And his neck broke when he hit the ground. But he's wrong. No, I, I, I saw his neck twist right round, right when uh, Hoof hit Chin. So now I've driven out to the airport, buried a body, and it's only noon. But that's what I did. I, I made things work. Ah, I was all right. Well, the year was 1870, and I was the principal investor in an orphanarium out on the Wamberton Moors. But when coal was discovered nearby, I made the decision to liquidate the orphanarium and as many of the orphans as refused a position in the nearby workhouse, which I also owned. However, once the building was demolished, I received a rather curious telegraph to the effect that something had been discovered beneath it. Travelling out by Curacol, I discovered that indeed 
the profane altar of an unnamed god was triangulating underneath the foundations of that building. No wonder so many of the orphans had been deformed. It was certainly none of my doing. And so I did what any good Englishman would do under such circumstances. I used a blunt lead knife to mutilate my own testis and genitals and anoint the altar with this vile blood of mine, whereupon I received a most curious premonition that in some 150 years' time there would be such a thing as a per de cast, and of course this turned out to be the wrong station. Was this knowledge worth my testis and genitals? Why, yes, I would have to contest that it was. It's a bit fuzzy, but yes, I do remember the night that I met Wrong for the first time. Of course, back then, everyone called him Mr. Station. It was at his private table in the back of Studio 54. I'd been there three nights in a row, dancing and wearing a still warm heart laced around my neck, hoping to get his attention. It's a good thing he showed that night. I was running out of naive friends. Well, he called me over to his table, asked me what I wanted to drink, and had someone go and get it for me. Asked me if I liked podcasts. I lied. He laughed. Then he took out a little box, a little mirror, and a razor blade, and asked me if I'd ever snorted radio static before. And frankly, looking at how it all turned out, I probably should have said no. But oh, for three years, it was beautiful. Well, I never thought I'd end up producing podcasts. See, I live out in the hills, and we got some strange folk out there. Got a man living down by the creek, got seven eyes, and not a one of them in a place I might expect. Got a woman living in a trailer under the bridge. Seen her give birth to a plastic bag filled with broken glass. Got no idea who the father was. Don't much care to find out, personally. So I always thought I'd spend my life just walking the earth, finding uh, whatever might be found up in what you might call the soil. But the day of my 40th birthday came down by the side of the abandoned highway there searching for truck bones, found a tiny fella doing his best to fight off a cluster of things that might have been possums back before the chemicals got to him. So I pull out my chain and start laying about him, and don't you just see it go the way you expect? Each of them going up whap like a grisly balloon full of, full of white paste and blood tumblings. Bit of a god in my mouth. Can't say it's the worst high I've ever had in my life, but sure as shit weren't the nicest one neither. Next thing I know, little feller's got me drug up inside the drain culvert because we got the acid rain falling outside, chewing up through the soil, and it's been six days since I went under. And, uh... <clears throat> And I said to him, little fella, are you taking any liberties? And he said, no, sir, but give me liberty or give me death. And I said, little fella, 
I like the cut of your jib. And he said to me, son, you ever produce a podcast? And I said, no, sir, but I did once hit six hogs with a mouth, then ran them down by the old tailing pond just to see if the dark stork would take an interest. And he said to me, son, you're hired. <laughs> and the rest is history. Ha-hoo! Oh, yes, it is. Well, the thing you have to understand is that I come from the theater, and in the theater it's all about process. So the first time I was recording for them, they asked me, can you do that line again but sound like you're gurgling blood? And I asked them, well, am I gurgling blood from my right lung or from my left? And they said, well, uh, I suppose in this case you'd be gurgling from your left. So I took the Bowie knife that I always carry at my side and proceeded to puncture my own left lung. And that dedication to the process is why they asked me back for seven more episodes. Yeah, so I was in a freelance cult for a while. You know, someone has an old god that they need a sacrifice for or some ancient ritual prepared so they come to us. The work was okay, but sometimes you end up worshiping three or four different gods in the same week, and they all have competing interests. <laughs> and suddenly you're cursing a dozen different ways and trying to get goat blood out of your robes at the same time. Tough gig. So, uh, anyway, when Wrong Station came around and asked me to live in the cave system for three months, I didn't even ask why. I still don't know why. Hell, I'm still here. Now, now, I told them wrong station boys that horror don't come from evil scientists, monsters, or even a scream of outer space. No, horror comes from right here. The heart. Horror is what happens when you come across your childhood dog as an adult man. He's watching you from down the street far enough away that you can't make out any old discerning features. But you know it's him, it's that same dog. Doesn't matter that he's been dead for well over 15 years. It's that same dog. Every night he's there watching from the end of the street but never moves closer. You start to wonder if perhaps you mistreated him in life. If the dog stands so far away because you kept him at a distance in some way. A way that only a dog would understand what with the vast gulf of emotion what separates animal and man. A dog begins appearing to you more and more, always at a distance, always standing, stock still. It eats at you, of course. You love that dog the way only a young boy could. Your work suffers, relationships degrade, sleep becomes like a ghost, passing through you but bringing no substance. Eventually you turn on the dog, Rage against the unfairness, its enigmatic presence that provides no relief. You ain't to blame for this. You ain't done nothing wrong, not so far as you know. One evening you see the dog as it coming home with groceries. This time, though, there is a man standing with it, leash in hand. They're both as still and quiet as sycamore trunks. Each step you take towards him pushes him a step further away. Once you get inside, you discover a message on your answering machine. Your brother is dead. Now that's horror. 
Ooh, makes me wish my brother was still alive to hear it. Well, I suppose he ain't exactly dead neither, but he's sure less talkative. Sal! Sal! You wanna get in on this interview? Nah. He's playing with the dog. As always. The boys at Ron's station never would have got off the ground without me. But ain't nobody got time for Joey Centipede. Oh, sure, when you need some centipede, it's all. We love you, Joey, and nobody's got peds like you, Joey. But where's that love when Joey comes around for the monthly payments? Nowhere. They brought me in to clean the sluices. But the sluices, they didn't want to be cleaned. They wanted to take a man and drag him under, to drag him underneath, drag him down into the sluices, and underneath the sluices was endless night. Please, please, I've been down here so many years. I cannot die. I cannot die here down under the sluices. I cannot sleep in perpetual wakefulness. Always dark, but ever awake here under the sluices in endless night. Hello? Why won't you answer me? What is that microphone for? Can you kill me? Please, can you kill me? I'm changing down here. The place beneath all sluices changes a man. I do not like what I think shall become of me. Joey Centipede is full of shit, and I got no qualms saying it for the public record. Guys all talk, no walk, which is particularly bad in the centipede business. We handled the wrong station account together, but he was always late in deliveries, or he tried to pass off a 95 or even a 92 legger as a full centipede. And why is that? Because I'd go into his office, night before delivery was due, find him high up his ass on heroin, two hours into a 80s Japanese city pop playlist of his own making. Never worked, of course. Those wrong station boys are smart. I stopped working with Joey once I got into the millipede business. More legs per product. It's just more efficient. Something Joey never understood. The name's Lorenzo Millipede, if I haven't already mentioned. Of Lorenzo's Millipedes. When did you say this is? People thought it was strange that Vincent never did wrong station. I mean, he was the horror actor of his day, and that was the show to do. It seemed like it would have been peaches and cream. But we just didn't have anything for him, time and time again. I will say, maybe I shouldn't ruin the mystique here, but why not, that one day Vincent's agent called us at casting, said that he really desperately wanted to do something, anything, for the show just one time. And as chance would have it, we really did need to record some new Foley that week. So what I'm revealing to you and everyone here for the first time ever is that if you are listening to an episode of Wrong Station that aired between 1958 and 1979, and you hear Foley of someone eating too much meat, that is Vincent Price. Of course, I remember when we were first working together, Ecklerfell was already a huge celebrity. I mean, here's this kid all of 26 years old, but he's already Grand Prince of Hell. Well, when it comes to treading the boards, this cat's still nothing but a baby actor. I remember this, this one scene we were playing, shot on location at a Joshua tree. Beautiful, crisp desert morning. But we must have been up at about 3 a.m. to get through hair and makeup on time, and it's this scene where we're standing on a hilltop flinging white rabbits into a bonfire. And (laughs) we've got this damn helicopter circling overhead that keeps blowing takes because of the sound, and 
can see, I'm looking at Ectofer and I can see that it's starting to get to him. His eyes have gone full white. He's sweating maggots. The poor makeup technician has to come up between every single take to dab them away with grease paper. And so I call for a five and I pull him aside and I say, glide, baby. Just glide. And when we came back, baby, this cat glided. And that's when I knew this exifer is not just a pretty face. Jack, he is a thespian. What? He really said that? Oh, God, I always thought he hated me. I mean, here's this actor, the, the great Julius Moses. He's like a jazz musician. And across from him is this blundering clodpole who keeps forgetting his lines and eating the crew. God, can we cut for a minute? I'm starting to tear up. Well, that was uh, sort of the dirty secret that everyone in the company knew at the time, but uh, nobody really talked about. That wrong station branded hot dogs weren't being made in house. What we do is send an intern over to the grocery store to buy a bunch of hot dogs, or uh, sometimes over to the pig works, get them wholesale, then uh, bring them back to our facility and run them through an inkjet printer. Two years we did that, long as the promotion was going on. And the real kicker there, the real one, was that the hot dogs weren't even handed. All those cases of heart attack by cause of spectral harassment was uh, just Eloise following people around with a, with a bamboo blow dirt pipe. <laughs> Ooh, ee. Can't get away with that anymore. Hi there. You probably already know who I am. I'm Bresis. Bresis Antiocles, co-host of Wrong Station's legendary 19th series. Um, <laughs> yes, I am something of a very special monkey. And yes, I do grapple daily with the moral cost of what the wrong station producers had to do in order to create me. All those other monkeys. And so the rumors say, human children, though of course those allegations have never been demonstrated to the satisfaction of a court of law. It repeatedly gives me cause for introspection. And I think, given our current climate, isn't that exactly what the world needs more of? I certainly think so. Does that mean I think it was justifiable for those thousands of screaming monkeys and some say human children to be fed into the whirring blades of the brain recompiling machine? I mean, really. Who's to say? As journalists, it's not our job to answer questions. It's our job to show the human side of the issues that our society faces. That's the approach we always took when I was on Wrong Station, and it's the approach I continue to take in my column with the Atlantic Monthly. I'm Bresis Antiocles, a monkey with the brains of a thousand other monkeys crazy glued together inside the glass aquarium that is my skull. And most importantly, 
I am a journalist. For so many of us, Wrong Station remains an indispensable part of our childhood, whether because of the long, autumn nights curled up around the radio, or because the producers sent helmeted men to kick down our doors at 3 a.m. and take our parents away forever. Ah, I don't know about you, but that one sure takes me back. But the story isn't over yet. After an uncountable number of seasons, the wrong station is still going strong, and a whole new generation of children get to lie awake in the 4 a.m. darkness, saying to themselves, I love you, Mommy and Daddy. Please come back, wherever you are. Ha! Huh. I still say that to myself, some nights. And, after all these years, no matter how many times that mysterious voice tells us to, well, we just can't seem to adjust the dial.